A symphony for seven moons and all of us who watch them in wonder. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. I think we have the perfect show for all of us who want to leave our troubles behind for an hour or so. You've heard two of my guests before. A few months ago, astronaut Nicole Stott and Cassini Mission Project scientist Linda Spilker introduced me to the work of Amanda Lee Falkenberg. I've been looking forward to welcoming all three of them ever since. We will talk about Amanda's magnificent composition called The Moon's Symphony, and we'll hear excerpts from all seven of its movements. Each is inspired by one of those small and unique worlds that beckon to us from across the solar system. We'll save a few minutes for some fun with the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. Bruce Betts looks to a moon of Saturn for this week's Space Trivia Quiz. We begin with headlines from the January 8th edition of The Downlake, our newsletter of the cosmos. It is topped this week by a gorgeous false-color image of Saturn's North Pole, snapped in 2013 by Cassini. The European Space Agency's ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter has been circling the red planet since 2016. It has yet to find even a whiff of methane down below. That's in spite of the Curiosity rover occasionally detecting some. Curiouser and curiouser. It has been nearly two years since Israel's Space IL attempted to land Bereshit 1 on the moon. Now we've learned that they will try again. Bereshit 2 is expected to make the trip in 2024. It didn't make it into the downlink yet, but we've learned that NASA will perform the last test firing of the Space Launch System's core stage on Saturday, January 16th. The SLS must pass this critical step if it is to make its first flight late this year. A special announcement now. Are you a passionate science writer or editor with a few years of professional experience? Want to work for the Planetary Society and share the passion, beauty, and joy of space? We're searching for a great person who will be our new associate editor. You'll find the job description on our website if you search for Associate Editor. And another thing, we've just learned that our distribution partner for Planetary Radio is moving us to a different hosting service next week. We hope this transition will be completely transparent to everyone listening, but you never know. Remember that you can always find us at planetary.org. And wish us luck. Last announcement, I promise. Casey Dreyer and I are finally ready to bring you the January Space Policy Edition. It's not that things in Washington, D.C. have settled down, not yet anyway, but we couldn't see delaying this month's episode by yet another week. You'll hear it on Friday, January 15th. By the way, we're grateful to all our listeners outside the U.S. for your good wishes. Here's my recent online conversation with Linda Spilker, Nicole Stott, and Australian-born composer Amanda Lee Falkenberg. I hope you'll agree that it is one of the finest and most inspiring segments in the history of Planetary Radio. Linda Spilker, Nicole Stott, welcome back to Planetary Radio. You know, it would have been enough to have you two past very distinguished guests return to this show together, a scientist who has now served as project scientist for one of the most successful and thrilling missions of exploration for more than 10 years, and an engineer who lived in space for well over three months, now an accomplished artist, 
Welcome back, both of you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Matt. Thanks. Uh, Nicole, we're not alone. Would you please introduce our guest of honor? I would love to. And uh, this is one of those small world things, I think, that's just serendipitously, I think, Matt, as you used a word with us before, um, has come together. I will just say that Amanda Lee Falkenberg is one of the most talented, thoughtful, creative, amazing women I've ever met. Very fortunate to call her a dear friend. And to, to shorten it up a little bit, stunning composer. I don't know all the details behind Amanda's education or really a lot of the other production she's done before, but I can tell you what we're going to talk about today has been life-changing for me from the standpoint of music and science and hope for the world really coming together. So I'm very excited for you and for all of the listeners to learn more about Amanda. Amanda, I bet you have no complaints about that introduction. (laughs) It's very, very generous words from Nicole. And thank you, Nicole, for that um, really sweet introduction. And um, I'm just as thrilled to be here. I would just like to say that I'm delighted that finally Linda and Nicole get to meet because actually this um, radio show bet us to it because we were scheduled to meet in Abbey Road Studios in December last year. And I was very excited about that possibility, but it looks like this radio interviews bet that to us. So um, yes, so privileged to be here for sure. Well, welcome. Uh, It is wonderful to have you on Planetary Radio for the first time, which I can't say about your two uh, accomplices who have joined us today. Your accomplishments as a composer, a conductor, musician, they really stretch over many, many years. They've earned you international recognition and awards. And now this symphony that has won praise across these overlapping worlds of art and science, we're going to hear excerpts from all seven movements of the symphony. But Let's begin with where did the inspiration for this work come from? How does one begin to create a symphony? (laughs) And it's very interesting you say that because, you know, in reflection, you know, looking back over these last three years, and I stand here looking at the project that the, the size that it is right now, and this so multifaceted and so many elements to it. And it'd be so easy to think that, You know, people might have assumed that three years ago I had this map all laid out and all the elements were beautifully, you know, sort of uh, realised back then. But the plain and simple truth is that it started so organically and so simply. I trace it back to 2017, 2017. And I was almost finished writing my 10-minute piano concerto called Crossing of the Crescent Moon. And I was about eight minutes of my way into it. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to research the ancient symbolism of crescent moons. And about two hours into my research, I stumbled across this website that said 10 of the weirdest moons of our solar system. (laughs) And I felt like a bolt of lightning just went through my system. I had so much excitement seeing this collection of moons. I was on my iPad, I was just staring at them, and the first feeling that came to me was, these moons need music. And directly after that, the next feeling that came to me was, these moons need emotion. Being a film composer, I'm well aware of what happens when you team up music with stories. It just elevates it to a whole new level. And so here I'm looking at these moons going, oh my goodness, they're just locked in this vacuum of space. And I kind of just wanted to break them free from this. And I 
thought, wow, if I team them up with music, that might help amplify their stories even more so other people could enjoy them. And that's really how it all started. And it was such an incentive to finish my piano concerto, which I did two weeks later. And that was the beginning of my Moons project back then. You obviously based a lot of this on things that we have learned about these moons only in the last few years at most decades. And I'm thinking of, well, two of the movements inspired by moons of Saturn, perhaps the ones that have gotten the most press, Titan and Enceladus, which, uh, Linda Spilker, your mission has revealed so much about to us. You really, though, took, it seems, Amanda, the best science and added these voices to it. That's exactly right. And, you know, it was about a month into my research when I just decided to um, commit to this Moons project. And it was just music back then. And then I quickly realized that there was an opportunity I did not want to miss out on when I started looking at the characteristics and, like you said, the science. And I'm like, oh my goodness, imagine if I employed the forces of a choir to sing the science and the characteristics of these moons. Wouldn't that just give my project so much more substance and relevance and more of an outreach? So that's when I really started getting quite you know, interested in science and the scientists. And I wanted to try and locate a scientist who I could consult with to anchor my facts in accuracy. And that's really how like the Linda and I came into each other's orbit through another scientist I met in that journey. Linda, I just want to hear what it means to you as somebody who has spent so much of her life studying these moons and the planets about which they revolve, to hear them expressed in this other medium. How has it affected you and, and uh, along with the opportunity to work with Amanda on this? Well, for me, listening to Amanda's music and also the visuals that go with it, it almost gives me a sense of what would it be like? if I could actually be standing on the surface of one of these moons or up very close. And to hear that music, the music that's custom made, if you will, for each of these moons, describing their characteristics and sort of the feelings that are evoked from them, in particular thinking about Enceladus and the geysers coming out of the South Pole and hearing the swell of music uh, that goes with it, or Titan, giant Titan, this huge moon in the Saturn system with lakes of liquid methane. So I was very excited to hear about Amanda's music. In fact, we first met when I was introduced to Amanda through uh, Bob Papalardo, the Europa Clipper Project scientist. And Amanda reached out to me via email, and she had just given a, a TED Talk, and she sent me a link to it. And I listened to her talk and watched her, and I was hooked. And after that, I invited her to come to the final Cassini Project Science Group meeting, that was in July of 2018, and to share her movements with that group of scientists, and they were very impressed by her work. Amanda, you have built quite a fan club. I mean, anybody who goes to your website, and we have a link to it uh, on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio. If you want to get there um, directly, it's moons-symphony.com. There are lots and lots of great resources there, but it also has these, these endorsements, this praise from uh, not just Nicole, but lots of other astronauts, a photo of you standing with several of them, and including friend of Planetary Radio, Leland Melvin, and Nicole, but also scientists like Bob Papalardo and, and others. Obviously, whatever you have tried to communicate with this symphony 
has been pretty effective, even with those people who have both been up there and have sent their robots out to uh, to study these worlds. You know, I'm really taken aback, actually, because, you know, as artists, you know, that's all we ever want to do is have our music, our creations resonate with as many people as possible. But we never really, you never know what sort of outcome your art is going to produce. And, you know, to have these reactions, it's just so pleasing and um, satisfying that, it's just come from layers and layers of inspiration. It's it's so interesting to me because I've I look at all this science that these scientists have collected, the stories, you know, this symphony wouldn't be possible without them. And so it's this virtuous circle that I find is going on. And so I'm just as thrilled about them and their work. <laughs> and I should be writing them reviews really. And um here they are um, you know, commenting in, in such kind and generous ways about this symphony. It's very satisfying. Definitely a mutual admiration society. Composing any symphony, composing the Moon Symphony, was monumental in itself, but that, that was hardly the end of your efforts. How did the process of, of uh, sharing it with the world begin, and, and what's the current status? It's interesting because even before I had written a note of music, I had this vision, I still have this vision of world premieres in Royal Abbott Hall and Walt Disney Concert Hall. It just will not leave me. Fortunately, um, we have recruited the magnificent musical brilliance of conductor Marin Alsop to be the captain of this musical spaceship, as I like to call it. <laughs> and um, we are thoroughly overjoyed by having her cachet associated with this project. So we are currently putting together initial plans about a global world tour to share the message with the world. And so, you know, obviously in the middle of this pandemic to try and progress this symphony is challenging, as you can imagine. But Matt, you know what? I just, I trust in this whole process as Nicole and Linda will vouch, everything has just, you know, this symphony has taken on a life of its own and I really believe that it's just lack with so much fortune and I trust that whatever path is is planned for it, it will be a beautiful path and I'm sort of so grateful for even how far it's come in three years. So I'm just as equally, you know, not so much confident, but I just trust that its evolution, it, it will evolve and in a very natural and organic way. So what is it that we can hear on your website? Uh, because the symphony can be heard there. Well, yes, and I'm very thankful for technology because um, what people will hear is not a real-life orchestra at all. It's a synthesized um, orchestral library that I've used to emulate the idea of a real orchestra, and fortunately that technology is excellent these days. Um, however, the choir, as Nicole will vouch, the choir samples are not so good, and for a very long time I had a very fake choir singing singing the science um, to syllables that no one would um, understand. I called it Earth, uh, moon language, the moon language. <laughs> but anyway, we well, what this happened during COVID actually, I hired 12 voices from the London Voices to independently sing the choir parts to make sure all of that was working as intended. And so what, what you're currently hearing on the website is, you know, the fake orchestra, but with real voices. However, you're not hearing the voices mixed as, an, as a rich ensemble. It was just, it's impossible to do this during COVID right now. But, you know, hopefully it gives a little bit of an impression and at least the lyrics can be understood. 
I think it's lovely. Perhaps that's a measure of my lack of sophistication, but I think it's absolutely marvelous. And then there are these photos, and I believe some video, of you working with the choir, including a young man who we will hear in the last movement that looks to Earth's own moon. Who is that uh, young guy that you, you recruited? That is Joshua Abrams, and he has the voice of an angel. And um, mm. again, that came about very serendipitously a couple summers ago. We recorded the two soloists. There's a very powerful tenor voice also at the end. Um, my very good friend, Daniel Cook from West End, he played Jean Valjean in um, Les Mis. Those two voices uh, were just the the most magical elements for that seventh movement, which I will describe in more detail later. But I was so grateful to be able to record them because what I did once I had the 12 voices from the London voices, the choral element, I then just layered the soloist that um, I'd recorded a year before that over top of it. So it's just, you know, a bit of patch together in this pandemic. But I think and hope it, you know, gives the best to emulate what the real stage version is going to be, hopefully 200 voices on stage. I think you did an outstanding job considering these limitations. Matt, this is Linda. Let me just add that when I first saw and listened to the seventh movement, it was just such a wonderful feeling. It brought me back to the memories of watching uh, that Apollo landing on the moon. And it really was very humbling also to listen and watch and bring back these incredible memories and see just how small the earth is as seen from the moon. Let's not keep people in suspense any longer. There's much more that we need to say about what can be found on the website and about what's ahead. But I think it's time for us to hear the first of these movements, which uh, begins with a bang on that wild moon of Jupiter that we call Io. Uh, Why did you decide to start there on that volcanic uh, mass of chaos? Well, I wanted to begin with a blast, Matt, honestly. (laughs) And, And, you know, what better moon to start off with that concept, hey? This moon is has just got such incredible history dating right back to the Voyager missions. Such a, a scintillating moon. This first excerpt, which I've titled Celestial Tug of War, derives its inspiration from the fact that Io is in this unique orbital resonance with companion moons Europa and Ganymede. And so this tug of war situation results from Europa and Ganymede pulling Io in one direction, meanwhile the almighty Jupiter's yanking Io back in the other. And so it's this brutal choreographic ballet is how Io is chained to this elliptical orbit and responsible for this runaway tidal heating, dramatically expressed in the form of hundreds of exploding volcanoes and lava seas. So the lyrics took inspiration from the idea of this celestial battlefield taking place in the Jovian system, which is literally ripping Io apart. And the orchestral landscape had to be as dramatic and powerful to emulate Jupiter's ruling dominance and to help capture the volcanic scenes of chaos on Io, who takes the full brunt of this orbital resonance. Linda, did uh, Amanda, with that description, pass the science quiz as well as the musical one? Oh, she absolutely did, Matt. Iowa is such an incredible world and so so beautiful in all of its colors as well, clearly torn by, as Amanda said, these hundreds of volcanoes erupting on its surface. 
We'll note, Linda, of course, that you were on the Voyager mission before you moved to uh, Cassini all those years ago, the Voyager mission that uh, first revealed the wonders of uh, this world. Uh, let's go ahead and listen to that excerpt. Deep-seating, cold-bleeding, flowing red Just a few moments from that first movement of the Moon's Symphony, Io, but we have a second excerpt from that same movement. Amanda, introduce this one for us. The Loki Patera volcano is a very persistent and prominent horseshoe-like feature on Io and is even bigger than Lake Ontario. And what impressed me the most about a Loki Patera is its volcanic behaviour. It's nothing like you'll ever see on Earth. And it's a fascinating process, and it was described to me as this massive quiescent lava sea, and over time a crust forms, and once it reaches critical thickness, it sinks back into the magma, whereby the sea resurfaces like a giant windshield wiper by this foundering crust. And this process continues time and time again. So I figured with a volcano being such a prominent and powerful part of Moon Io's story, I knew it had to be a very special feature in this first movement. What a lovely description. All right, here is Loki Patera from that first movement of the Moon Symphony. Absolutely lovely. Wonderful. <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say about it, except uh, it, it's just an example of how beautiful this entire symphony is. Let's go on to the, uh, the second movement, which is literally a move from fire to ice. 
Uh, Linda, we already mentioned your your friend and colleague there at JPL, Bob Papalardo, who is the science lead for the Europa Clipper mission, which we hope sometime later in this uh, decade will be taking us back to Europa. Could you say a few words about uh, about this other moon of Jupiter? Yes, Europa is a very fascinating world. It's just a little bit smaller than the Earth's moon. And it has a very smooth, very young surface with fractures and cracks on it. And we believe that there's a liquid water ocean underneath Europa's icy crust. And perhaps in this ocean, there might be the conditions that are right for life. So with missions going back to Europa, it's to look in more detail. How thick is that icy crust? Are there plumes like we have coming from Enceladus coming out of Europa? And can we sample those? and see if we might find the key ingredients for life on this icy world. Amanda, set us up for uh, this short excerpt from The Second Movement. I just want to start by saying what's so exciting about talking about this moon is exactly this NASA flagship mission, the Europa Clipper. It is such a compelling moon, and like Linda said, the tantalising evidence to support this idea that there's this global subsurface ocean underneath what they think is a 20-kilometre ice crust. You know, if this mission isn't riveting enough, I know that there's also uh, discussions about a follow-up mission that's potentially going to send a lander. And my hope, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, is that I hope one of the instruments could be something like an ice probe that could penetrate this ice um, shell. And so I painted this idea into this next musical excerpt. So you'll hear what I call the penetration of this ice crust towards the end of this next excerpt. You'll hear high trumpets hold a high chord with a, a dramatic roll from timpani, which is followed by rich sustained strings that signals that we've reached the bottom of this 20-kilometre ice crust and ready to explore the exhilarating possibilities of Europa's oceanic world, which may contain microbial life. Just a taste of that second movement of uh, the Moon Symphony, Europa, Ice Probe, from the lander that so many of us hope will uh, will reach that moon someday. We jump now to a neighbor of Europa, Titan, that uh, moon which was so mysterious for so long. And thanks to Cassini, Linda has begun to reveal uh, its mysteries. I should say Cassini and Huygens, which is really part of the focus of uh, this next movement of the symphony. Tell us a little bit about Titan, as if our audience has not heard uh, quite a bit about it from you in the past, and uh, about Huygens. Well, Titan is about the size of the planet Mercury, 
as Voyager flew by Titan in the early 1980s, we just saw a smog-covered atmosphere couldn't see through to the surface. Titan has a thick, dense nitrogen atmosphere, and liquid methane plays the role of liquid water. So it can rain liquid methane, form clouds, the methane fills lakes and seas. And so Cassini carried the Huygens probe to parachute to the surface of Titan, landing softly, taking our first images of this very intriguing world and revealing the surface for the first time and seeing rounded icy pebbles telling us that indeed liquid, in this case liquid methane, flowed on the surface of Titan. Amanda, both of these excerpts that you've provided are focused on that portion of the Cassini-Huygens mission, the, the descent down to the surface of this moon and what it was able to show us. Yeah, that has really captured my imagination, the whole drama of that. And um, that's what this movement is all about. So this next excerpt I've called Huygens Conquers Titan. And it happens after, you know, their seven-year journey together. It was with the Cassini spacecraft. But this next excerpt follows the story of the Huygens space probe's grandest assignment, which was, um, as Linus said, to conquer Titan's thick, stubborn atmosphere to reveal the secret world below this that's been tantalising scientists for decades. So the musical passage begins with high drama as we anticipate Huygens' dramatic descent piercing through Titan's infamous orange clouds. And the music is very uplifting and fanfare-like, accompanying the brave Huygens on his journey while excitement continues to brew as we hold our breath, wondering what the treasures Huygens will find below Titan's dense haze. Again, just a brief excerpt. If you want to hear more, um, you can visit Amanda's website, uh, which, uh, as I said, we have a link uh, on this week's show page at planetary.org radio. Much more of composer Amanda Lee Falkenberg, astronaut and artist Nicole Stott, and Cassini project scientist Linda Spilker is moments away. You'll also hear more beautiful excerpts from The Moon's Symphony. This is Planetary Radio. The next little excerpt that we have is also from this uh, third movement, uh, focusing on Titan, and it's that inevitable end of the Huygens mission. Amanda, tell us about this. Yes, so this next excerpt is called Huygens Batteries Dying. We are at the end of the movement, and Huygens has carried out his heroic duties. He's parachuted through the clouds, two hours and 27 minutes taking photos, completes the perfect touchdown, performing the most distant spacecraft landing in history. But now his batteries are dying. So I took a few artistic liberties with this ending because Huygens' incredible accomplishments got me thinking a bit because I felt Huygens might find himself a bit annoyed by his situation. So the closing musical atmosphere is quite robotic in tone, imitating the robot's huffs and gruffs and that 
It's heard by bass clarinet, as if Huygens is trying to say to the scientists, you've got to be kidding me. You're seriously going to leave me here to rust after all I've been through? And then you'll hear a gentle strum from harp as if to respond saying, yes, but your legacy lives on. Farewell and thank you, Huygens. I'm going to pause here a little past the halfway point through these excerpts and ask you, Nicole, certainly not the first time you are hearing this beautiful music. Does it still affect you uh, as somebody, the only one among us who's actually been at least a couple of hundred miles toward these moons that uh, we're listening to (laughs) captured in music? Yeah, I, I don't think it ever will stop impressing. Uh, And I'm so happy that we're having this little journey through the excerpts of each of the movements. I think there's this, this, just this really in all of them, this kind of otherworldly feel to them, you know, the music itself and, and the lyrics that come from it. And I really and truly cannot wait for people to experience this as, you know, the compilation with you know, the science-based artwork and video that will go along with it, just kind of a, you know, every sense will be impacted. And, you know, when you travel to space, even just a couple hundred miles above the planet, that's what's happening to you. You know, every sense is is being impacted in some way as you experience Earth from that vantage point, at least. These movements lead up to the seventh movement, you know, Earth Moon, where it brings it all back to Earth. Um, I think all the work that like Linda and the other scientists are doing too, regardless of where we go out in this really amazing universe, you know, I think about that Cassini image with the little dot of light below the rings, and it's all about us finding our place in it. And um, that's, that's what this music does for me too, brings it back to our home planet and really gives you this sense of who and where we are in space together. Does it give you a little bit of a sense of what we have come to know as the overview effect, which was all about looking down on our home planet, but maybe giving it giving us that for these other worlds? I would say absolutely. And I think all of you have spoken to uh, to other astronauts as well. And I think all of us will tell you that uh, now we highly recommend the the view of Earth from you know, through those spaceship windows. I will not deny that. But that experience, that sense of who and where we are, this this overwhelming understanding of the interconnectivity of it all, I don't think you have to go travel on a spaceship and look out the window to see that. These images from, from Cassini and the others, and now with, you know, with Amanda's stunning music to pull it all together, these are the kinds of things that, that bring that feeling just that sense to us without having to travel to space. And I am always now, you know, it's the awe and wonder of it all. We need to be, have our, our hearts and our minds open to that awe and wonder that surrounds us. And then when it can be heightened in this way, 
through this compilation of music like I've never heard before. Uh, I think it's just a wonderful experience that everyone should have. The phrase that we always use on this show is uh, stolen from our boss at the Planetary Society, the PB&J, the passion, beauty, and joy Mm -hmm. of space exploration. Uh, I think in listening to Amanda's music and seeing the images return from all of these uh, spacecraft, what it does for me is it opens up our broader home, the solar system, and starts to bring a familiarity to us for these different worlds and these different places. And I can almost imagine maybe someday we'll go to these worlds, set foot on them, and learn to understand them, perhaps even live on some of them, as we continue to understand our home in the broader sense, the solar system. And I can't help but imagine what would it be like if we go back to Titan and go back and look at the Huygens probe, go back and perhaps even retrieve it. Will we find this uh, tiny probe coated in a ice of methane ice? Uh, what will it be like? How well will it have survived and weathered its time on Titan? Linda, there is another world out there uh, circling Saturn, which I know is very near and dear to you uh, and that you would like to see us visit. And that's uh, Enceladus, which is the inspiration for the fourth movement uh, of the Moon Symphony. Um, Give us a minute or two about that moon, and uh, then Amanda, we'll turn to you for how it affected you and how it inspired this music. Enceladus is much smaller than Europa, a tiny world, and yet it's bright, white, and icy. And Cassini discovered that underneath Enceladus's icy crust, there's a liquid water ocean, and at the South Pole, are actually jets and geysers of water vapor and water ice particles shooting into space. And Cassini was able to fly through and taste and sample the material coming from these jets and actually found not only water, but all sorts of other hydrocarbons and the key ingredients for life. Uh, so the, the ingredients are there. And now the question is, did life form in that subsurface ocean of Enceladus. And so, yes, I'd really love to see a mission to go back to continue the exploration that Cassini started, uh, perhaps fly through the plume, bring back a sample, maybe even land on the surface of Enceladus to understand this world just a bit better. Amanda? Yeah, so this next musical sequence is all about romance, the romantic view of being offered by this tiny moon Enceladus. So the music takes inspiration from experiencing Enceladus's rows and rows and rows of towering fountains of misty water vapour crawling the night sky. And honestly, if that wasn't breathtaking enough, you imagine showstopper Saturn hugely suspended in the backdrop to accompany this gorgeous scene. And, you know, just to think that these events are even taking place in the solar system right now, this isn't pulled from some sort of sci-fi movie. And I think this just makes it even more emotionally stirring, you know, to think about what Linda and her team have returned about this moon's stunning story. Amanda, if you uh, ever decide to give up composition, uh, I think we'll have a job for you as a writer at the Planetary Society. <laughs> oh, you're too kind. Actually, I do want to add one little fun fact, if I may, and I, I just had forgotten about this, but um, tomorrow marks the third birthday of Linda's music for Moon Enceladus. I made an oath. I wanted to finish it three years ago. It was one of the second moons I composed. And so we have a little birthday coming up for this moon, moon's music tomorrow as, as an actual fact. So I just thought I'd share that as well. Oh, that's wonderful, Amanda. Thank you. <laughs> Here is that uh, very brief excerpt from Enceladus. 
gigantic geysers. All waiting for us out there. Uh, let's reluctantly leave Saturn and head further out in the solar system to Uranus uh, and uh, a moon there, which is um, also very intriguing, but we haven't had the opportunity to learn as much about. Uh, Linda, introduce us to Miranda. Miranda is one of the smaller Uranian moons, and it's in close to the planet. It's only been visited once by a spacecraft, and that was by Voyager in 1986. It's a very interesting world. It has this cliff 20 kilometers high on this tiny world. It also has fractures and very interesting geology. And so it's an intriguing tiny world and be very interesting to go back. We only saw one side of it with Voyager. And so I wonder what mysteries the other side might hold. Amanda, it's your turn. Introduce us to this excerpt from uh, the Fifth Movement. So I've called this monolithic site, this excerpt, and it's basically devoted to Moon Miranda's story. But what's really captured my imagination was that what caused the catastrophic events? How did they transpire to give her the most geological complex terrains in the entire solar system? And I know there's a couple of theories floating about, but one thing for sure is that Miranda is one of the innermost moons of parent planet Uranus and inner moons are subjected to ferocious impacts from incoming projectiles. So the next music explores the scenarios and could explain why she looks the way she does. And in the middle of this next excerpt, the music turns to Miranda's famous feature, which is the Verona Rooks, which is what Linda was just talking about, which I call the monolithic site, the tallest cliff in the entire solar system. And as Linda also pointed out, I couldn't believe that, you know, Voyager 2 has been the only spacecraft that's visited um, Miranda. So I felt her story has been so neglected to me and all the more reason I wanted to give her an emotional landscape to this world that looks like it's being burnt, beaten, thrashed and scolded to hope to arouse, you know, compassion and empathy to what this moon has endured in its torturous primordial past. Bye. 
Wow. A musical cliffhanger uh, there, if you will. <laughs> Again, just a, an excerpt. Let's turn back toward the sun in our solar system, returning to Jupiter and the moon Ganymede, that big moon. I think it's the biggest one, isn't it, Linda? Yes, Ganymede is the largest moon in our solar system, and it too has an internal ocean underneath its icy crust. And it's unique because Ganymede is the only moon in the solar system with a magnetic field, much weaker than the giant magnetic field of Jupiter, but a magnetic field nonetheless. And again, interesting geology on the surface of Ganymede. Uh, Amanda? I wanted to divide this movement into two distinct sections. I wanted to devote the first half to the phenomenal science that's taking place at Ganymede. But the second part of the movement, I wanted to pay tribute to the famed Italian scientist Galileo Galilei, who turned old notions of a geocentric universe upside down by his discoveries of the Galilean moons back in 1610. And I was trying to find an elegant way to link these two sections, and I struck poetic luck because there's a heady scientific phenomenon called magnetic reconnection, and it's where energy and mass move between magnetospheres and the boundaries between Ganymede and Jupiter. And not only does this word reconnection acknowledge this science, but now I'm using it to transport us back in time to reconnect with Galileo Galileo so we can marvel at his colossal discoveries. So the next musical excerpt is very celebratory in nature as we salute Galileo Galilei, the father of modern day science and all his exceptional discoveries. We turn now to the last movement of the Moon Symphony, the seventh movement, and it brings us essentially back home, or at least very close to it, to our, our own moon, the one that gets a capital M. Nicole, I think this has special meaning because I think of your astronaut colleagues, the lucky ones among them who were just announced as uh, members of the Artemis team. And among them are, as... Uh, NASA likes to say the next man and the first woman who will, we hope, step before too many years pass on the surface of the moon once again. We had Stephanie Wilson on the show just a couple of weeks ago. Do you know Stephanie? 
Yeah, I know Stephanie very well. And it's funny that you say that because the when that whole announcement came out, she was the first one that I emailed to say that I hope she realizes she'll be packing in her bags with her to, t- <laughs> to take me with her. Um, yeah, she's wonderful. She, she gets my thumbs up too. I um, would love to see her making those, those steps. You know, Matt, um, one thing I want to share with you that, you know, Amanda mentioned a birthday uh, uh, tomorrow as a, an anniversary of some of the wonderful work she's been doing with Linda. And I will just say that also, as far as I understand, I think it's another birthday as well. I believe Amanda has a birthday tomorrow too. Oh, no kidding. So, <laughs> so that's something to consider. <laughs> I have my birthday present right here. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, and it's, you know, and I, I mean, I really, I'll just say that I feel like this whole thing is a gift, right? Um, this music is, I would think, a gift that Amanda is giving to humanity, quite honestly. And this Earth Moon movement really and truly is the way, uh, if I have to pick one thing that brought Amanda and I together, this is it. You know, we're both members of this group, this interesting group called the IAAA, which is the International Association of Astronomical Artists. And they have very wisely included not just those of us who paint or draw, but but music as well. And Amanda is part of that group. And I, I don't think we have enough time today, but let's just say we got introduced through that that group by an email that was just a simple request of mine to have her bless us with the music of the Earth Moon Seventh Movement to celebrate the Apollo 8 mission, the 50th anniversary back in 2018. You know, Matt, you said it, the, this idea of, of our colleagues who will be going, you know, soon again there, but also of the colleagues that shared that very special view with all of us, you know, this first human <laughs> vision of, of the Earth rising over the horizon of the moon. And they didn't keep it to themselves, you know. They they let us experience that as a gift on you know Christmas Eve back in 1968. Earthrise, what a moment, Amanda! Before we let you take us there musically uh, for the last of these excerpts, I want to follow up on what Nicole was talking about. The I I AAA, this group of artists um, on your website, you acknowledge and and have some comments from some really fine space artists, many of whom have been on the show. In fact, we featured. Uh, multiple members of the IAAA uh, as a group in the past uh, on Planetary Radio. That also brings me to mentioning the videos that people can see on the website. Could you say something about those? I'm so pleased you brought that up. This project has been very, very charmed in so, so many different ways, as you're already experiencing with astronauts, Nicole and Linda and the scientists, but I've also been equally blessed to have this visual component gifted to me. You talk about gifts. Um, Ron Miller and Ed Bell have supplied the most stunning artwork to help bring a visual element to this musical canvas. That's how I came to understand about the IAAA was through Ron Miller. And they have been so supportive over the years and really helped, you know, catapult my project to a whole other level. And so I have so much to be thankful for. But yes, and Nicole's obviously part of that as well. I just want to quickly add, if I may, and if we have time, is that, you know, Nicole's and my relationship is obviously extremely special and and very sacred to me because of this project. I think it's just worth mentioning that, you know, when I started out with this Moons project, I never had any intention of including a special anthem for Earth or anything like that. It was just pure Moons of, of the outer solar system. And it was about 
four or five months into my project. And I think I'd just written music in uh, Europa, Enceladus, Titan. I was just starting to work on Miranda. And you know, Matt, something just didn't feel right. Something felt missing. I just had this really weird feeling and I just couldn't shake it for a couple of weeks. And it was only when I was exploring Miranda and obviously we just experienced how you know, harsh and volatile these outer edge of the solar system is, all of a sudden I just got homesick and I found myself beaming myself back to earth and like, oh my God, it's safe here. And then all of a sudden I realized what was missing. I'm like, oh my gosh, we need to be looking at our earth in this project. And I went, oh my goodness, let's have a movement where we're standing on earth moon, looking down at our planet to see how it is teeming with life and what a privilege it is and what a gift it is to us to have this um, ability to co-create and and experience this abundance. It's only through conversations that I had many with Nicole and her telling me about her emotional accounts of seeing Earth. And she kind of pointed out to me, she's like, Amanda, you've had your own Earth rise. And I'm and and you know, she really is right. And um, there's another part to that story, which maybe I'll save for another time, but I just thought that might be interesting to share my journey as an artist it, you know just that's how serendipitous this whole project has been it's so organically evolved over time i am so glad that you felt that you had that sense that something was missing because it resulted uh in well we're of course only going to hear a small piece of it in this absolutely lovely movement uh, about our own moon the one that is our uh, longtime companion here above our beautiful earth
Amanda, you have brought me to tears and not for the first time. Oh, wow. Wow. You know, um, for me, this seventh movement, my only hope is I just want it to inspire the daylights out of people because I think we all need large doses of this right now. So thank you for this opportunity to share our mission and our message and to talk about our favourite subjects, moon, earthrise, science, music. It's been incredible. It really has. And I am so grateful to the three of you. Please just give us half a minute about one other element of this project, because it is so much more than just a symphony, the companion guide that you are working on now. In the early days of the project, I always knew I wanted it to be a strong, substantial outreach element that would run in conjunction with the actual symphony. And now, of course, that the symphony is finally finished, I'm really excited to be able to start this new phase of the project because what's happened is is currently all the science is sitting in the libretto um, in a very poetic format, which serves its purpose uh, under this theatrical lens. But now what I want to do is take it out of that the libretto and sort of expand on the really nitty gritty science that inspired the libretto, just in case, you know, other students wanted to learn more about the concepts or the characteristics. This video, this companion guide is going to be a direct bridge to be able to make the correlation between the libretto's inspiration and the full-blown science. So um, I'm really excited to start this series this year. You can read more about it and hear the symphony and follow its progress at uh, moons-symphony.com. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. I cannot wait to be sitting in the audience in front of a full orchestra and choir and enjoying uh, the Moon Symphony. I I hope uh, with you and Nicole and Linda, I I sure hope that we're all sitting together for this. I agree, Matt. I so look forward to that first performance. Yes. And thank you for including me in this. And, you know, Matt, you said it about bringing tears. I, you know, there's definitely the goosebumps and tears factor that goes along with this. And I can just imagine what that will feel like in the real symphony hall. I think Matt also, in just listening to that, there's a, just for me, a tremendous feeling of hope to hmm. look back and see our planet. I know exactly what you mean. I feel it too, Linda. Amanda, the greatest of continued success Uh, with the Moon Symphony and uh, everything else that you are doing to uh, bring music to this world. Thank you so much for your generous time and words. And um, it's been my absolute pleasure. And I too can't wait to be in those symphonic halls with all of you and maybe take up that idea of having a live radio session or something on stage with scientists and astronauts. And um, I, I love that idea. I was afraid to bring that up. (laughs) (laughs) We dream big or we go home. (laughs) Oh, thank thank you, thank you, thank you. And may it be so. Thank you, Linda Spilker, Nicole Stott, and Amanda Lee Falkenberg for what has been a very special hour of Planetary Radio. I look forward to talking with all of you again. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Stick around. Bruce is almost here, and he has the entire solar system in his pocket. Hi, I'm Kate from the Planetary Society. For all its troubles, 2020 has still seen some terrific space accomplishments. We asked our members and supporters to vote for their 2020 favorites. You can see the results at planetary.org slash best of 2020. We're talking about the best solar system image, the most exciting moment in planetary science, and much more. That's planetary.org slash best of 2020. 
Happy holidays from the Planetary Society. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. We uh, turn now to the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. That's Bruce Betts, who's uh, here with uh, lots of fun new stuff for us, I'm sure. That's just an educated guess. Hi. That's an excellent guess. That (laughs) guess would be right. I'm glad. Well, prove it. We got planets, but they're (laughs) tough to see, except for Mars. Let's start with Mars. Mars is still looking pretty bright, looking reddish in the evening sky high up in the south. And on the 20th, the moon will be hanging out near Mars. Mars, random apparent magnitude fact, Mars is right about zero magnitude, apparent magnitude brightness, which is the zero, the weird zero of the weird astronomical brightness magnitude system, which is also about the brightness of the star Vega. Do you know what magnitude or apparent magnitude Mars reached when it was at its brightest uh, this season? Hmm, I don't remember exactly to the decimal point, but it was uh, between minus two and minus three. Remember, in this system, Hmm. negatives are brighter. So it was uh, much brighter than the brightest star, Sirius, which is about minus 1.4-ish. It is about as bright as Jupiter, which tends to be in the mid minus twos. So it's faded a lot. But still very impressive. And I will use this uh, to add a program note that uh, next week we'll be talking about Perseverance, making it down to the surface of the red planet uh, with uh, somebody who's uh, working on that right now. That's coming up. What else you got? I also have the challenging planets to see. We have Jupiter and Saturn. They're very low down, getting lower every day in the west shortly after sunset. Interesting, they're being joined by Mercury, and Mercury is nearby and actually higher now than they are, but still low in the west uh, for the next, it'll be visible for the next couple weeks, but she'll have to look soon after sunset. Might want to bring binoculars. Don't stare at the sun with them, though, please. (laughs) And in the pre-dawn, we've got Venus getting lower and lower in the east, so it's kind of a getting lower kind of thing. Still got Beautiful, bright Orion hanging out in the evening in the east and south, showing us it's northern winter, southern summer. We move on to this week in space history. Yeah, this is a busy week. I'm just covering a few of the things that happened. In 2005, the Huygens probe successfully went through the atmosphere of Titan and landed. 2006, New Horizons launched and Stardust returned samples from a comet. And that only scratches the surface. I don't know why, but it was a busy, busy space week. We move on to space backer. (laughs) I don't know. So coming back to the Huygens probe, though it landed on solid ground on Titan, it was also designed to survive an ocean landing, which would have been a methane-ethane body of liquid, uh, which they prepared for just in case. And indeed, those were confirmed, as we now know, on Titan by the Cassini spacecraft. That would have been cool. I mean, there was that effort uh, to put a, a boat on Titan. They were talking about that. Maybe someday it'll happen again. We'll have to settle for a flying machine in a few years. Yeah, that'll be uh, super cool. But if there is a boat, I'm rooting for you to be on it, Matt. <laughs> I want to bring the water skis. The methane skis. <laughs> we'll have to look into that physics. <laughs> All right. Trivia contest. I asked you, how many crewed launches to space were there in 2020? How did we do, Matt? We got a big response. 
probably because of the terrific prize that uh, somebody has won. That somebody will be identified in moments. But first, here is the response from Gene Lewin in Washington. Reconnaissance, communications, heliophysics, and navigation, photographic satellites, rovers, and aircraft to Martian sites. 100 successful launched in all, plus two in spring and two in fall. These four missions carried a crew that ventured from our marble blue. Half are from the Cosmodrome, the other half from here at home. A little bit United States-centric there, but we hope that people will forgive us for that. It's, is he right? Well, if, if he lives in the United States, then yes, definitely. <laughs> yes, there were four human launches, two Soyuz, and uh, two uh, SpaceX crewed launches. We heard that there were 12 humans on those four missions. We got that from a bunch of people, including Claudio Winkler in Brazil, Bert Caldwell in New York, and uh, Eve Bedouin in uh, British Columbia. I think I just killed his last name. Eve added that six went with uh, SpaceX Express and six on Soyuz buses. <laughs> I'm not sure those are the official names for those, but uh, we'll go with it for now. Here is our winner. Happens to be somebody who won almost exactly three years ago and has not had a win since, not till now anyway. It's uh, Mukesh Varsarni in the UK uh, who said, yep, four different missions that carried humans up to the International Space Station across 2020. Uh, congratulations, Makesh. You have won that time since launch, that uh, cool TSL device from CWNT, the one where if you pull the pin, it starts counting and doesn't stop, as long as you change the batteries now and then, until it gets up to 2,738 years. I wonder what occasion he'll uh, use to, to pull the pin. I do too. Perry Metzger in New Hampshire. I'm not sure if you count the failed suborbital attempt by Virgin Galactic since it didn't make it to space, but in case you do, I'm mentioning it. Something similar from Essam Beglu in, in Canada who points out that we didn't specify the launches had to successfully get crews into space. So I don't know. I don't know. What would you have thought about that? Uh, no. <laughs> because it was how many crewed launches to space. So I think I, I rule that that would imply you actually made it to space. The judge's ruling is final in this case. Maya Sukup in Canada, those 12 people they really picked a great year to spend some time off planet. <laughs> <laughs> kind of similar for Marine Benz in Washington. Amidst all the concerning events of 2020, the news of four crewed launches to space kept us looking upward toward the stars for a brighter future. Thank you, Marine. Oh, nice, yeah. Nicely said. Yeah. Finally, from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild, there were four launches of crews up to space with SpaceX and Soyuz to each, and Virgin Galactic suborbital flight aborted before they could reach. A total of 12 made it up past the line, the 100-kilometer ward. So where do we sign up to join in the flights? I want to have my time on board. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't agree more, Dave. We're ready to move on. This one's a little contorted, but hopefully fun and interesting. So back to Huygens. If Huygens landed on Earth at the same latitude, so to speak, as it landed on Titan, same latitude and longitude, it would have landed in an ocean, just like it was designed for, sort of, except it would have been water. In that case, if that happened, name one of the closest islands or island groups to its splashdown. Oh, my. 
<laughs> and they're a bunch of islands and different names, so I'll be fairly flexible if you if you got got one of the answers. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You are an evil genius. <laughs> you have until the 20th. That would be the uh, 20th of January at 8 a.m. Pacific time, a Wednesday, to answer this one. And uh, it's been a little while. How about a Planetary Radio t-shirt? We've, yes. We've got some other stuff. But uh, but those are ever popular. A Planetary Radio t-shirt for the person chosen by Random.org this time who uh, who comes up with those uh, those islands. We're done here. Aloha. All right, everybody. Go out there, look up the night sky, and think about relaxing on a small island when an alien spacecraft comes parachuting through the atmosphere and lands in the ocean nearby. Thank you, and good night. Be sure to wear a sweater. He's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who love the music of the spheres. Join the chorus at planetary.org slash membership. Mark Hilverida is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.